this episode of This Nan Up Life. I'm Peter Sprifflis and this is my observations of the planet as viewed from Nanup down here in the southwest of Western Australia. The podcast is complimentary to my blog, thisnanuplife.net. If you haven't done so already, head over there and subscribe to receive in your inbox my newsletter containing the blog posts and updates about new podcasts. Anyway, let's get on with today's episode. So this podcast episode is one of my Truthonomics series and is focused on the issue of increasing polarisation in our political discourse and particularly how can we find our way to some middle ground when every side of the political aisle is using our news feeds and our social media tools and our smart devices to drive us further apart. If you're like everybody else, you probably haven't noticed that nobody is looking out of train windows anymore. Whether people are standing or whether they're sitting, their heads are bent down like they're praying, scrolling their devices, occasionally clicking and making a few comments or maybe trolling someone else's post. But really, everybody is so addicted to their devices and the dopamine hits that they deliver. And as we know, big tech has delivered a series of solutions here that are actually more effective than casino slot machines in asking from us to look at these things every day. And behind all of this is the big tech algorithms, which, as we all know, are designed to press our buttons and what we all know as well is that the best button presses are items on our feeds that are short, sharp and shocking. Nuance, complexity and accuracy be damned. And as the old saying goes, a lie will go around the world while the truth is still pulling its boots on. Of course, we all like to think of ourselves as being above being influenced by advertising or the deliberately provocative and shocking things that appear in our news feeds. But the truth is, why would the political parties or advertisers of other items spend so much time, so much money trying to get to the top of our feeds if they didn't influence the way we thought, the way we acted, and particularly the way we vote for who we believe are the right people to lead us through what are going to be some very interesting times over the rest of this decade and the next. But the unfortunate truth is, and I hate to break this to you, is that we are actually all at risk of scrabbling down some kind of conspiracy theory rabbit hole, also known as doing our own research, if we mistakenly take an untruthful item on our newsfeed seriously. But the steady stream of shocking information that the algorithms feed us can do a hell of a lot of damage well and before we become either red-pilled or green-pilled. We know that the middle ground is disappearing in democracies right across the developed world at the moment. Parties that have been not too far from the middle ground have either been drifting off to the right and left or else splintering so that we're seeing politicians on both the right and left assume more extreme positions and present more extreme policies to us voters. Previously, moderate politicians are becoming uncomfortable with the idea of being seen to compromise or to cross the floor or to agree bipartisan policies. 
So let's dive into how our news feeds are being manipulated that's resulted in these increasingly polarised outcomes. To do this, I thought the recent Voice to Parliament referendum here in Australia is a useful case study. For those who don't live in Australia, the Voice referendum concerned establishment of an Indigenous representative group with whom the government would consult regarding draft legislation. So the proposal was developed over several years with mainly bipartisan support and a lot of consultation with a range of interest groups, not just Indigenous groups. And it was supported by both what I would term as the shit party and the shit light party, that is the Liberal and Labor parties that tend to dominate Australia's preferential voting system. Now, the voice group, once it was established, would have no legal standing to veto, to override or actually change any draft legislation. The concept was a purely consultative group and it was really based on the principle that the folk who are most likely to understand the impacts of policy upon them are actually the people who are affected by those policies. So rather than have Canberra mandarins assume they know what's going to happen, make recommendations to government about the impacts of policy on Indigenous Australians, the group was designed to provide a short circuit so that legislators could hear from Indigenous people themselves about the likely impacts so that untoward effects of policies and better options were explored than ones which were just dreamed up in suburban middle-class Canberra. Now, quite late in the process, and we're talking just a few months before the referendum that we'd all heard about for three or four years, the leader of the shit party, that's the Liberal Party, or what in Australia is really a conservative party, decided to break away from the bipartisan position for purely political ends. And really what happened next is an illustration of the liar's playbook that is used by people who want to manipulate news feeds and our voting intentions on a matter of issues and was seen with great effect with both Brexit and Donald Trump's US election campaigns. So what are the elements of this lies playbook? Well, the first thing to do is to lie. The next thing to do is to repeat the lie. And in fact, repeat the lie at every possible opportunity, even though people might publish rebuttals, question you, don't acknowledge the way you're being questioned, just keep repeating the lie. And even though there'll be some people who may believe the lie and end up doing their own research and ending up completely red-pilled or green-pilled, the main purpose of the lie is to engender doubt, particularly doubt in the minds of reasonable-minded, middle-ground-type voters who, when faced with a repeated barrage of politicians stating something as fact in an authoritative way, really can't bring themselves to believe that it is a lie, but then really can't accept that it is the truth either. In the case of the voice to parliament, the lie that was allowed to spread was that making this change to the Australian constitution was but the start of a slippery slope towards Indigenous Australians reclaiming ownership of suburban backyards of white Australians. 
Now this law was allowed to metastasize across all available platforms. So much so that it forced our shitlight, that is the Labor Party Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, to reassure Australians on Talkback Radio that suburban backyards would be safe. He had to say that out loud to the Australian population on Talkback Radio. This was a perfect outcome for the shit party senior leadership, who then just went all in on step four of the Lies Playbook, rallying voters with the chant, If you don't know, vote no. If you don't know, vote no. So, of course, this meant the referendum was on a hiding to nothing. Australia's inherent conservatism, coupled with our entrenched racism, delivered a national no vote of 60%. Here in the southwest of Western Australia, the figures were even worse than that. It was closer to two to one against. So that was the end of that referendum. However, a really important point to make is that given that the lies playbook is so effective at creating doubt and therefore people leaning towards voting no with any new change to the constitution, Constitutional scholars in Australia are now concerned it may be impossible for Australia to make any further changes to our constitution by a referendum, which is the only legal means that we have available to us. This gives us significant risk in Australia that our constitution won't be able to move with the times when it does need to at some point in the future. But it isn't just the racist right who use the lies playbook. The climate action industry is at least as bad and a real bugbear of mine is the repeated statements by those involved in the climate industry who believe that we can achieve our climate goals by increasing renewables whilst simultaneously reducing fossil fuel burning and maintain our standards of livings at the same level that they are at the moment. The one thing we know for certain, as COP28 illustrated, when push comes to shove, there is no government planning a lower standard of living as an emissions reduction strategy. While there is a lot of talk about increasing the use of renewables, which you can find on my blog post, my Truthonomics number three, where I talk about the need for renewables to be supported by batteries and the fact that I prefer to call renewables intermittence if only to remind ourselves that it needs batteries and other forms of energy as backup, we need to accept that when push comes to shove, governments are going to try and maintain standards of living by pursuing the nearest and cheapest energy source to hand. And across the planet between now and 2050, that is still likely to be the burning of fossil fuels. If we are to make any meaningful reductions in fossil fuel burning by 2050, we will need to ramp up all available alternatives, not just our traditional renewables slash intermittents, but also really work hard on expanding hydro. Not everyone's that happy about the environmental consequences of that. Exploring much deeper the role of geothermal and also looking at nuclear power. Now, unfortunately, the nuclear power industry has very few friends within the militant green left, and I've previously blogged about quite a few of its problems, but to be militantly lying that nuclear waste is unmanageable or that reactors can't be built safely 
doesn't really help anyone and certainly won't help us achieve our climate goals. The doubt generated by repeating these lies is exactly the same as in the illustration I gave earlier about the voice to parliament referendum. Doubt means community concerns, which means regulatory delays, which means increasing the cost of progressing what would otherwise be reasonable nuclear power strategies that can genuinely assist us in achieving climate goals and provide the much needed backup we're going to need for our intermittent renewables. Anyway, so that's a little piece on the Lies Playbook and how our feeds are used by liars to create a situation where sensible policies can't be pursued in the interests of us all, our climate and the environment. So that part of this podcast has really been about what our feeds show us. I'd like now to touch on what our feed doesn't show us and the fact that the truth of an issue may not necessarily be somewhere in the middle of the conflicting narratives that are filling up our feeds, but hidden elsewhere out of sight. We've all seen the so-called common sense approach to synthesising conflicting narratives used by broadcast media, whereby the truth is assumed to be somewhere between extremes, and so the mainstream media will make a point of inviting both sides to a debate and get them to discuss and or debate a controversial issue. The more conflict between the opposing sides, the more clicks, the more eyeballs, and the more likely the issue is to make it onto our news feeds. However, while that's happening, it may mean that the truth of the matter is being suppressed and isn't trending on our algorithm-driven news feeds. So just a couple of examples. Certainly, you see debate about subsidies for EVs in many jurisdictions, but you don't see any discussion or debate about public transport subsidies. Yet, subsidising public transport could save at least 100 times the greenhouse emissions and also the scarce rare earths and other lithium and copper and other resources needed to put together one Tesla. Another example, which perhaps isn't as developed in some jurisdictions as Australia, here in Australia we have really quite firm restrictions on big tobacco's ability to advertise or sell their products. But what we never do is debate taxing and restricting the advertising of big food, things like the fast food industry, which is responsible for a large part of our obesity-related pandemic, which is filling up our hospital beds and causing reductions in life expectancy in some of our most wealthy economies. And of course, our political systems really make no attempt to address mass media concentration in the hands of self-serving super-rich or the impact of the big tech algorithms on political consensus building. But instead, what we'll often hear politicians doing is debating the pros and cons and the amount of funding for public news services. This decline in the fourth estate has been very well covered by many, but just one little case study here in Western Australia, in response to the tech giant's online news revolution, our sole daily newspaper decided it would no longer be a paper of record. That is, it would no longer be interested in providing Western Australians with the truth. Interesting perspective to take, 
what it did is it slashed editorial, news and investigative reporting staff and switched to a tabloid. And by that I mean a brain-numbing tosh and owner's own political interest only format. In doing so, the local paper, I suppose, was just merely sliding down the same information quality slope as most newspaper mastheads, not just across Australia, but across the developed world generally. Getting back to our public broadcasters for a moment, most of them still have functioning news services of a sort. However, even they are increasingly conforming to the clickbaity type methods and publish first and check later approach of tabloids, and that's if only to compete for eyeballs and justify ongoing government funding. And the other thing is about the publicly funded broadcasters is that there is a fine line they have to sort of tread, particularly when they choose to take on or highlight contentious issues. Biting the government hand that feeds can and does have consequences. And obviously that fine line they have to tread means that they're less effective at combating the drift that we're seeing in the Overton window in the direction desired by the plutocrats who run our large broadcast media and even some of our big tech media. But with the fourth estate having its last rights read to it, where can we go to find glimpses of our economic, social and environmental realities and some substantive commentary or discussion about them? I might just diverge a little bit into the role of big tech and AI as to whether they can assist us. Probably the first point to make is that reaching for Bing or Google on your tablet, laptop or phone isn't going to really help you much. Those search engines are designed to serve up stuff that will make you click ads, not really accurate information. I personally stopped using either of those at least five years ago now. You can try and anonymise your searches by reducing how much big tech tracks you, but that basically means signing out of every single useful app or tool on a smartphone or tablet and pretty much turns them into a pretty dumb and useless thing. But even then, what we know is that big tech don't really quite tell the truth about what they're doing in the privacy space and Google itself has just been fined $5 billion for tracking users who are attempting to maintain a modicum of privacy by using a private browsing mode, which in the case of Google Chrome is called incognito, goes by other names with other browsers. So one thing you can do, of course, is move to the news aggregator solutions, things like Flipboard, Reddit or Fark tools that aim to find out what's trending out there and bring it to your attention. But of course, because they're actually in the game of attracting eyeballs to their sites and the dopamine hits as the big tech companies themselves, they often are relying on the same big tech algorithms and feed techniques. One example that tries to be a bit different is smart news and that tries to offer both sides of a story. But Obviously, if what's important isn't even being discussed in the mainstream or isn't trending, you're not going to hear about it or see about it. Of course, the coolest tool to use these days, if you don't want to use a conventional search engine, would be to try one of the AI tools such as ChatGPT. Obviously, 
I should do a few posts on generative AI. And at the moment, I'd suggest generative AI is coming off the inflated expectations peak that you see in the Gartner hype cycle. But we will learn to use it over the next few years, and I'm sure it will be really useful. But an important point to make about generative AI is it doesn't have any fact-checking capability. And in its eagerness to please, generative AI is often prone to using incorrect references or may just make stuff up in support of a particular argument or position. Essentially, what that means is a sensible question in may actually mean garbage out, albeit written in very slick, persuasive and grammatically correct prose. The flip side and downside of generative AI is, of course, the rapidity with which any small group of users or protagonists of a particular position or lie can use it to vomit out any desired length and style of social media post. So it really is a beautiful tool for abuse. A small group of people can choose to produce hundreds, if not thousands, of slightly varying articles using different formats, using different social media platforms and spread those across the web very rapidly. And of course, those which are the most attractive and exciting will be picked up by the big tech algorithms and spread far and wide. So where does this leave us? For mine, I'm trying to work out where I can find a human editor to assist me in working out what might be important to pay attention to in the morass, which is the extraordinary amount of options for accessing what purports to be information on the web these days. You've got platforms like Substack, Medium and YouTube, which have all facilitated an explosion of specialist blogging, vlogging, podcasting and streaming sites and content. And there's some great stuff out there on those platforms. Some of the best ones are supported by a paid subscription model, but I personally don't have the time to sign up for somewhere like 50 or 100 independent subscriptions to cover a decent range of topics. And in terms of a value for money proposition, the dilemma is even subscribing to just two high quality blogs, which might only offer between them four articles a month, is going to cost more than subscribing to a daily masthead, even though, as I've outlined, the concern with the daily mastheads is that they're really not in the business anymore of providing reasonable information. Personally, I'd be happy to pay significantly more, and in actual fact, I do pay more than a subscription price to any of the daily mastheads in Australia for some editorial guidance. I tend to find podcasters and streamers who interview a diverse range of informed, reasoned, and insightful individuals with genuine specialist knowledge of particular topics is a really useful launch point into a particular domain that perhaps we should be paying more attention to. And when I look at what these individuals are trying to do, a lot of them are trying to actively promote awareness of important issues to get them onto the mainstream table. And if you think about it, it's a very similar kind of role to what editors of quality mainstream media giants of the past used to do. But most of your individual podcasters or YouTube interviewers don't really have anything like the profound reach of an editor of a national daily masthead of your. 
what I hope is that over the next few years, we'll see better newsfeed models emerge that are less driven by algorithms. I would really like to see models where human editorial ship is included in the brief. A lot of the news aggregators, I think, would do a lot better if they brought in some human editorial ship and even had editors reviving the art of providing journalistic commentary on a daily basis around topics that require more attention than the latest cat video. Perhaps then we'll be better informed and can engage in more meaningful and useful discourse rather than continuing to scroll and troll our way to extremism. In the meantime, perhaps we could all attempt to scroll a little bit less, look out the window a little bit more, reflect on how increasingly polarised we are becoming and perhaps try and connect with each other either on our side and particularly on the other side a little bit more. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening and again, if you haven't done so already, please head over to thisnanoplife.net and subscribe to leave a comment or get in contact. It would be great to hear from you. Bye for now.